your truth find freedom and in your will discover peace amen, amen. today's scripture brings us the exodus book uh five through book six verse eight afterward moses and aaron went to pharaoh and said this is what the lord the god of israel says let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness pharaoh said who is the lord that i should obey him and let israel go i do not know the lord and i will not let israel go then they said the god of the hebrews has met with us now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The same day, Pharaoh gave the order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. By requiring them to make the same, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubbles to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to the Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what they are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must <clears throat> produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued you people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. 
but by name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Good morning, everyone. Moses must have thought it was going to be easier. Last week, we found him at Mount Horeb meeting with the Lord at the burning bush. There, the Lord told him that he had heard the cries of his people, and he promised to rescue them. And today, we continue in the story after Moses has returned to Egypt to bring this message to Pharaoh from the Lord. Let my people go. But what happens next and the story that unfolds shows us that freedom would not come to God's people without a fight. It turns out to be much harder than Moses imagined. Uh, so much so that at the end of chapter five, he bitterly cries out to God. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? You have not rescued your people at all. This is the cry of a man who desperately wants to see the world change. He sees the wrong for all that it is in, in all its monstrosity. He's doing everything he can to help. And despite all his efforts, nothing changes. The cycle appears to be repeating. So he cries out to God in his anguish. Why, Lord? Why is this so hard? As we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the, the Bible gives us an ideal of justice by revealing uh, that God cares for the poor and the oppressed. But the Bible also shows us in gritty and in honest terms what it looks like to pursue justice in a broken and sinful world. Like the Psalms of Lament, Exodus gives us permission to ask God uh, hard questions like Moses in our sorrow and in our anger. But it also gives us a word of hope that has the power to sustain our efforts. Let's consider three things that we learned from Exodus 5 and 6 today. First, the demand of justice. Second, the obstacles to justice. And third, the power for justice. The demand, uh, the obstacles, and the power. First, the demand. At the burning bush, Moses appears to receive everything he needs to free the people from Pharaoh's grasp. He's been commissioned by God Almighty. Uh, he receives miraculous signs. His brother Aaron is appointed as his spokesman. 
And so they confidently step into Pharaoh's court to declare, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And without hesitation, Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So Moses tries again in verse three. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. The the three days uh, here describe how long it would take to arrive at the worship site. It doesn't necessarily imply a return journey. Now, I like how one commentator paraphrases Moses here. Perhaps I didn't make myself clear, he imagines Moses saying to Pharaoh. It is God who has met with us. He came to us with this message. God is speaking to you now, not two old men. But Pharaoh will have none of it. He tosses them out. He tells them to get back to their work. And then he brings down the hammer on the people, increasing their labor and their suffering. We'll come back to those details in a moment. But, but here's the first point. The book of Exodus not only gives us an ideal of justice, but it brings us face to face with the challenge of pursuing justice in a fallen world. It seems like it should be pretty simple, shouldn't it? If God wants his people free, then he speaks and it should happen, right? Remember, we're talking about the God who said, let there be light. And there was light. The the idea that God would speak such a clear command through Moses to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would respond with disrespect and sarcasm is almost comical. But this is what Pharaoh does, and it sets up the major theme that will play out from chapter five to the crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14. Who is the real sovereign? Is it God? Or is it Pharaoh? And here in chapter five, Pharaoh himself asks the question, who is the Lord, he says, that I should obey him and let Israel go? The way the story is told, God himself must now struggle against the evil powers that have overtaken his world and that hold his people hostage. Moses certainly feels the urgency of this problem as he goes to Pharaoh this first time. But now he must find the strength to go back 10 more times with the same demand before he sees any results. Why is change so hard? One reason that change is so hard is that there are real obstacles in the way of any deep change, whether it's social or personal. We can name three of them here. An individual obstacle, a systemic obstacle, and a spiritual obstacle. Pharaoh is clearly here an individual obstacle, specifically his hardness of heart. Pharaoh looks at the people of Israel, and he sees only workers. He he measures only their contribution to his economic growth. And so he sees nothing of their humanity, nothing of their pain and suffering. He has no empathy. He's concerned only for himself. When challenged with the obvious unfairness of his ways, he lashes out with insults 
lazy. That's what you are, lazy. When he has a choice to make, he intensifies oppression and hardship, hoping that he can crush this problem out of existence. So there is certainly an individual dimension to this injustice and to any injustice. Pharaoh needs a change of heart. And you can imagine how differently things would go if he were to hear Moses and repent and, and change his attitude in his ways. That would be powerful. And it's why we, we always must pray for our leaders, whether they are good or bad. But this individual hard-heartedness is only one obstacle in the way of change. Exodus also shows us that the oppression of the Israelites is held in place not just by the power of a single ruler, but by a whole system that has been set up to maintain the status quo and prevent challenges to it. Archaeologists tell us that the slave system that we see here reflects the Egyptian context very well. Like the Nazis, the pharaohs were cunning in how they controlled their slave populations. They didn't try and maintain order directly, but they put the people under Israelite overseers. Pharaoh's slave drivers give the commands to the overseers who must get the people in line or be punished themselves. This kept the people divided and without strong leadership. And Pharaoh brilliantly uh, uses this situation to his advantage in verses six uh, through nine, through some clever political maneuvering. He, he gives the order to withhold straw from the people, but he makes the Israelite overseers give the bad news to the people. In this way, he fosters internal conflict among his slaves. And the Israelite overseers are so caught up in this system that by the end of the chapter, they've decided it's better not to mess with it. Change will only make things worse. They can't even imagine a different way of life anymore. These two obstacles show us something that's confirmed elsewhere in the Bible. Injustice has both an individual, personal dimension and a systemic, social dimension. For example, many of the Proverbs state that individuals must take personal responsibility in order to find success. But Proverbs 13, verse 23, also says, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Individual action matters, but the poor can also suffer from a failure of justice. In our own day, conservatives often emphasize individual freedom and responsibility, while liberals stress broken systems and structures. But what we see highlighted in Exodus is a complex web of individuals, institutions, power players, and economic forces that conspire against God's plan to rescue his people. This brings us to the final obstacle, the spiritual one. There's something more at work, especially when things never seem to change. The theologian Leslie Newbigin describes the problem in this way. We all know very well that long enduring institutions have something which can be recognized in those who form the institution at any one time, but outlasts and transcends them. A good school has a spirit 
an ethos which molds the characters of the students. It was there before they came and it will be there after all the present students have left. A nation similarly has something which is not just the sum of the attitudes of its individual citizens. And a mob can become an embodiment of evil, an evil which its individual members would never have wished for on their own. Clearly this something has a reality. This something which is invisible is nevertheless real, terribly real. When Christians have to fight their battles, they're not just fighting with this or that person. They're not fighting against flesh and blood. Their conflict is not against human beings. It is against the spiritual power that is behind, within, and above human beings. It is that we have to address. Paul's letter to the Ephesians calls these the principalities and the powers of this world. And we're going to focus more on this spiritual dimension next week as we look at the plagues against Egypt. But if we have these obstacles to justice in view, the individual, the systemic, the spiritual, what power is available to us to stand against them? There's a lot that we could say here, of course, but I think the most important thing to say is what the text itself emphasizes. That the Lord chooses to move towards his suffering people. The social justice activist Brian Stevenson calls this the power of proximity. It's the first step toward justice. Stevenson says, when we allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected from those who are vulnerable and disfavored, we lose our effectiveness. But proximity is a pathway through which we learn the kind of things we need to know to make healthier communities. Especially when you stand in proximity to those who are different than yourself, you begin to see things that you might not otherwise see. You begin to learn things that you might not otherwise learn. And if there are hidden obstacles to justice in our own hearts, in the structures of our society, and in the spiritual realm, then proximity has the power to begin to reveal them to you. I've certainly found this to be true in my own life. One of my oldest friends from college is a fellow named Kenneth Harrell. And on the surface, Kenneth and I could not be more different. Uh, I'm a white, secular, Christian convert, the child of hippies from California. He's a black man from rural North Carolina, the son of a Pentecostal preacher. But for some reason, Kenneth uh, befriended me in college and gave me the opportunity to learn things that I would never have learned on my own. Uh, he was the first person to invite me uh, to a black church service, take me to his home church, the Church of God in Christ in Rockingham, North Carolina. He taught me about Southern cuisine and the unique beauty of the Hammond B3 organ. Over the years, he sent me hundreds of hours of Pentecostal preachers on YouTube, and I'm still regularly humbled by his knowledge of the Bible and of theology. But it wasn't until about five years ago that I began to see that Kenneth and I experienced the world in, in very different ways. In 2014, as I'm sure you remember, a black man named Eric Garner died in police custody on Staten Island. He was only being arrested for selling loose cigarettes 
but he was put in a band chokehold. Uh, he cried out 11 times that he couldn't breathe, and then he died. Now, Linda and I were living uh, near New York City at the time, and the protests over Eric Garner's death dominated the news for several months. And so one day, my friend Kenneth and I were talking about Eric Garner, and he began to share with me for the first time his own experiences with racial profiling, difficult experiences he had had with the police, uh, his experience of everyday racism, and how inequality had shaped the life of his family in North Carolina. Now, why do I tell you this? For this reason, as I listened to Kenneth, I realized something for the first time. Here is someone with whom, at the time, I had been friends for 20 years. We talked every few weeks or months. And it had never occurred to me that his everyday experience, walking, driving, shopping, going to the doctor, might be different than my own. I had never considered how the legacy of slavery might have impacted his family. There was something that I was blind to in my own heart and in my assumptions about how the world works. I had to repent, not only for my actions, my individual responsibility for racism, but for my inactions for failing to love my friend from the heart, all the while participating in a social system that was to my advantage and to his disadvantage. Imagining myself in the story of the Exodus, I may not have been Pharaoh or one of his slave drivers, but I easily could have been one of the wealthy Egyptians lounging by the Nile, watching the pyramids get made. Pharaoh's question in verse 2 is actually a good one. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The answer that the Bible gives us is that he is a God who moves towards the hurting and the humble. This includes the poor and the oppressed, but it also includes anyone who's been humbled by their sin by their indifference, by their desire to maintain the status quo. When the Lord speaks again to Moses in chapter six, he returns to his covenant promises and he assures him that the story is not over. He will act to fulfill his promises and he guarantees it with his own name. I am the Lord. This God of Israel is sovereign, but he is a suffering sovereign. And in Jesus, he reveals the full extent of his love. On the cross, he stands in our place, not only for our conscious and willful sins, but for all the ways in which we participate in a fallen and sinful society. He takes it all upon himself on the cross, and he unites himself to us in all our brokenness, in all our failure. And he takes it to the grave. He dies for all of it, 
And when he comes out of the grave, when he is raised from the dead, it means that a new creation has come to light with new systems and new structures in which we can live different kinds of lives together. Friends, this is the gift that we have been given, and it is the task to which we are called. The Lord says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. I am the Lord. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you today with an open admission of our guilt and of our sin. Uh, We pray that you would open our eyes to who we really are uh, in the depth of our brokenness so we might know the ways in which Jesus uh, has come uh, in order to deal with all of that, in order to bring real, deep, lasting change to each one of us as individuals and to our society and world. We long for your new creation to come. We pray, Lord, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. And we uh, pray for more of your spirit uh, that we might live into that new heavenly reality, even now, uh, together as your people, as a church, uh, and here in this city. uh, We uh, pray for your power and for your grace to be on display. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.